And welcome to the UVM podcast, the place where we discuss all things related to utility vegetation management and the ways in which we can collectively improve the reliability, safety, legal and regulatory compliance on transmission and distribution networks. Nick, my friend, how are you doing and who do we have as a guest today? Hey there, Steve. I'm doing great, thanks. Today, we have an old friend of mine, Otto Lynch, joining the show. Otto is president and CEO of Powerline Systems, makers of the software PLS CAD. PLS CAD has become the engineering software of choice that is used throughout the world for the design of overhead lines, including both new line construction and thermal ratings projects. As our North American listeners will be aware, NERC FAC 003, the vegetation management standard that applies to all lines that are operated at 200 kilovolts or higher, requires that the sag and sway of conductors are considered when determining whether vegetation infringes the minimum vegetation clearance distance. To quote the standard, the conductor's position in space at any point in time is continuously changing in reaction to a number of different loading variables. Changes in vertical and horizontal conductor positioning are the result of thermal and physical loads applied to the line. Thermal loading is a function of line current and the combination of numerous variables influencing ambient heat dissipation including wind velocity, direction, ambient air temperature, and precipitation. Physical loading applied to the conductor affects sag and sway by combining physical factors such as ice and wind loading. PLS-CAD does just this, and due to other NERC activity, such as the NERC Alert of 2010 and FAC008 relating to facility ratings, I suspect that virtually all of North America's network over 100 kilovolts has been modelled in the software. When I was first starting out in the electric T&D industry, I learned a huge amount from Otto about transmission line engineering and how the integrity of structures, as well as the sag and sway of lines, can have a large impact on the work of vegetation managers. Otto was once described to me as the rock and roll star of the lines engineering industry, quite the accolade. On that note, I'd like to offer a warm welcome to you, Otto. It's a pleasure to be here, Nick. Hi, Otto. I guess I'll start with the simple questions. As we all know, sag and sway of lines is a very important topic, but not something that's always well understood. Perhaps you could start with a general description and explanation of conductor sag and sway. Sure. Conductors are made of metal, usually aluminum and steel, uh, which expand and contract with change in temperature. Uh, When it's cold outside, the conductors contract, which increases the tension on the already high-tension lines that we have up. When it's hot, the conductors expand, which causes less tension, but more sag in the conductors. Further, on a typical hot day, customers are running their air conditioning more and more, and thus the lines have a high electrical loading, which heats them even more. A typical transmission line these days is expected to operate at 212 degrees Fahrenheit and hotter, with 250 degrees Fahrenheit becoming the norm in the industry. At temperatures like this, the metal expands a lot, and that can then create more than 25 foot of additional sag for a typical transmission conductor in a typical 1,000 foot span. For the sway part, the technical term we use in the industry for this is blowout. Wind can blow out a conductor quite a bit. In fact, the next time you're out on a windy day, just take a look up and look at some of the conductors in the air. You'll see them swinging. Under an average wind, on an average temperature, on the 1,000-foot typical span I mentioned previously, this swing can be in excess of 10 feet. Now consider what happens when that line is operating very hot and you get an average wind. The blowout now can be 20 feet or more. 
depending on the wind speed that is used. And why, Otto, is this relevant to vegetation management? You can't just go measure the clearances from the conductors on the ground or the vegetation on a typical day and then measure the clearances to ground or vegetation. You must know the entire conductor, what we call the movement envelope, and then measure the clearances from that envelope to the ground and the vegetation. It's also important to know that these sag and blowout of the conductors is most prevalent in the mid-spans. The conductor movement is actually very small near the actual structures. They actually are more of an hourglass shape, if you can picture that, that is very small near the structures, but very large in the middle of the spans. So when it comes to vegetation management, it isn't a matter of just clear-cutting the entire line. Selective vegetation management, considering this hourglass shape, can be done to greatly minimize the new amount of vegetation management that's actually needed. And is it just the conductors that move Otto, or can the structures and attachment points also move in a way that impacts vegetation management operations and clearances? Great point, Nick. Many overhead lines use what we call suspension insulators. Uh, the conductors hang at the end of a what we call an insulator string. And just like the conductors can blow out with the wind, the insulators can swing as well. So if we take the horizontal component of this insulator swing to the already high blowout of the conductors, this means that the overall distance from the original conductor position in an everyday environment can actually be quite large. And then now let's add the structural deflection part, as you said. Lattice steel towers, the big ones, are fairly rigid, so these are usually not a big issue. But on the other end of the spectrum, wood poles that are used quite frequently here in North America are extremely flexible. Think of fishing pole. It's not unusual for a wood pole to bend 10 foot or more in a normal wind event. That is another 10 foot to add to the already high conductor blowout and suspension insulator swings, and you can easily have 35 feet or more of conductor movement on the example 1,000 foot span from where the conductor was measured on a clear day to where it will be on a hot, windy day. And don't think that steel poles are exempt either. Steel poles are actually quite flexible as well. And in some cases, the steel poles can flex more than wooden poles. That's interesting, Otto. I recall on a recent episode uh, with our guest from Liberty Utilities, uh, Jason Grossman, he was commenting on ice storms and that they've impacted the network that he is uh, responsible for. We made a note to revisit the topic with you. So how does ice accretion impact an overhead line? And what are the implications for firstly vegetation management professionals and then in uh, post-storm response uh, activities? This is actually a twofold issue. First of all, ice is heavy. It's 57 pounds per cubic foot to be exact. And even just a half inch of radial ice on a typical transmission conductor can double the weight of the wire. This causes a lot of load, which causes a lot of additional sag. And it gets worse on smaller distribution conductors that can have the same half inch ice storm and it will triple or even quadruple the weight of the bare wire. So conductors, transmission or distribution can easily have ground and vegetation clearance issues under an ice storm, just as easily as they can on a hot summer day. The second issue in this is what we technically call conductor elongation due to load. To kind of simplify this, I like to use what I call the clothesline analogy when discussing it. So think about a brand new clothesline that you might put up in your parents' backyard. Being an engineer, you're going to pull it up nice and tight. Now, your mom or dad puts 10 pairs of wet blue jeans on the originally nice and tight line. Of course, we all know that it will sag down and it will sag down a lot. We hope that the jeans don't touch the ground and get dirty, but the wire's sagging down. So after the jeans dry, the line comes up a bit because the weight gets less. After we take the jeans off the clothesline, it doesn't come back to its original nice and position. 
This is because we have introduced what we call stretching into the wire. Since the pole on either end are fixed, there is nowhere for this extra stretch length to go except into additional sag. So after this loading, you end up with a permanent sag simply because you put this heavy load on it. Oh, and now that you have all of these extra sags on your lines, now imagine the next summer when the lines get hot again. Add that 25 foot that I mentioned earlier of additional sag to a conductor that has already experienced an additional 10 foot of permanent sag due to the half inch ice storm. So think about this the next time your grid experiences an ice storm. And for our northern folks, what about when you get that one inch, two inch, or even a three inch ice storm? Just because you didn't lose the structures or have a clearance issue during the ice storm doesn't mean that you are in the clear, and pun intended on that. Uh, thanks, Otto. Uh, perhaps we should dig a bit more into the software you've developed. I suspect many of our listeners don't use it on a daily basis, but they obviously will be in- indirectly impacted by it. What does the software actually do, and how does this help vegetation managers? Thanks, Steve. This is actually a pretty easy one. Our software calculates the conductor movement envelope, considering the sag, blowout, permanent stress due to the ice and windstorms, conductor swings, and structure deflections. So from this overall conductor movement envelope that we calculate, we can then calculate the true clearances to the ground, vegetation, and any other obstacles that the conductor will experience during its entire lifetime. It's important to note that I say life here, as we don't want to build a line today or do a vegetation analysis today that doesn't consider where that conductor will be in 5, 10, or 20 years from now. We certainly don't want to go rebuild those lines again in 10 years. Otto, is this only applicable to transmission or BES conductors? Absolutely not. Uh, In fact, I see way more clearance issues and design issues on distribution lines than I see on transmission. In my observation, most distribution line models do not take into account the terrain or elevation changes. They don't take into account sag or tension, and they don't take into account the conductor movement envelopes. I see many in the distribution arena just do a static clearances. They check for clearances from the vegetation or anything else from that matter from where the wires are on any given day. But as we've discussed, wires move, insulators swing, and poles deflect. If we started considering this overall picture on our distribution industry, we would see a dramatic improvement not only on our distribution vegetation management, but on the distribution designs as well. I know this wasn't part of the question, but I want to refer back to the question earlier on sag and blowout. As I mentioned, when it gets cold, the conductors tighten up. So a typical distribution conductor that's strung in, say, at 2,000 pounds in a nice 60-degree Fahrenheit beautiful day can easily go to 4,000 pounds or higher on a cold day in the winter. Now add in a little wind and a little ice, and it's no wonder that 93% of the outages in North America's grid are on the distribution side of our industry. And uh, how do you see the industry progressing, Otto? What major technological developments do you think will impact vegetation management over, say, the next five to ten years? Nick, I think our technology is already there. We have ways to survey vegetation through LIDAR, whether it be by airborne, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, or even ground-based systems. We have the software that can take that data, calculate the conductor movement envelopes, and then determine the clearances to the vegetation. The biggest obstacle that I see today is simply education. We need to educate the industry that these technologies already exist and already are there for use. I've often uh, thought that one of the major hindrances to ground-based vegetation inspection and planning work 
is how hard it is to perceive conductor position at maximum sag and sway, but also to find the right tree identified using remote sensing technologies. An export of sag and sway and remote sensing deliverables combined with augmented reality technology could be very compelling. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on this? Whoa, Nick, that's going to be a lengthy answer. And before we get into that, how about we take a moment to listen to a word from this episode's sponsor. This episode is sponsored by LiveEO. LiveEO offers the market-leading satellite-based vegetation management solution, which helps vegetation managers to improve network reliability and safety. The software automatically generates grid-wide vegetation overviews from up-to-date satellite imagery and provides insights about tree location, height, species, and vitality. The system calculates vegetation risk for each span and helps in budgeting and prioritizing cutback activities. The best part is, for listeners of the UVM podcast, they offer a free pilot for 30 miles of overhead lines. That way, you can find out for yourself whether their analytics are of value to you. If you are interested in the free pilot or in learning more about Live EO, just go to live-eo.com slash UVM or simply send a message to info at live-eo.com. And welcome back. Otto, I guess where we dropped off was uh, your response to the question about AR. Yes, we're actually working with several companies today with AR technology. However, from rather than approaching this from the overlaying the sag and the sway or the blowout of the conductors, which we can do, by the way, we have found it better for the AR overlay to show what we call our 3D vegetation work sites. So the work sites indicated are the polygons that should be removed to provide clearances from the trees required for the sag and blowout of the conductors. Then the ground arborists can look at the tree or trees in a worksite through the AR vehicle and determine if it can be trimmed or if the tree requires complete removal. It should be noted here that during the blowout of the conductors, though, there may be encroachments during the swing of the wires. In other words, there may not be a violation when the wire is sagging straight down underneath just a hot temperature. And there may not be a violation when the wind is blowing at a full higher winds pressure. But the conductor doesn't just jump from the bottom location all the way over to the blown out condition. So what can happen is many violations will occur as that wire swings, as it moves from the low point to that blown out position. And that's what we find in our, in our worksite vegetation. Also, our, our vegetation work sites can also indicate falling tree issues where a taller tree that's further from a line, it may actually have plenty of clearance during the sag and blowout event. But if that tree were to fall into the line, then it would hit it and cause a violation. Uh, we also consider that the trees will normally roll over on a root ball radius and not just a simple circle, assuming that the tree breaks at the ground line. Uh, we've seen lots of pictures of hurricane damage in the past month. And the trees roll out. They actually roll out on a on a on a um, on a non circular format. And as a civil engineer, this is a lot like what I call a spiral curve calculation on a highway alignment. It's a rather difficult calculation to make. However, we identify not only the trees, but what height of the trees would fall into the line, and can then indicate that on such an AR overlay as you mentioned. Then the arborist on the ground on site can make the determination to to top the tree at that point or to completely remove it to prevent a fall-in situation. 
I thought that was a brilliant answer. Uh, and I have another question for you specifically about PLS CAD. Can you walk us through the whole process of using it? Uh, how does LIDAR and other data get input and what type of output goes to the utilities? It, it would be hard in the given time here to walk through the entire process of using PLS CAD since it is a uh, turnkey beginning to end solution. But to answer your question on a broad basis, we can basically take any type of survey data and use it in PLS CAD. Of course, LIDAR data is the most prevalent these days, and we can directly import LAS, 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 LAZ files. Uh, those are standard formats. If they are pre-classified, that's great. We use it. If not, we have some what we call LIDAR tools, which will allow the user to do classification of the points within PLS CAD. So we can do that from either standpoint. Uh, once we get that data, then the user can then as-built align to match the LIDAR. Uh, this means not only the actual structural locations, but the attachment heights and the cross arms. So while lattice towers may be very strictly designed, wood pole structures are often drilled on site, and the arms and other attachments may not match what was supposed to have been indicated in the drawings. So we're doing this on an as-built basis. And once the structures and attachments are determined, then the conductors can be snapped to the actual LIDAR survey point. As I mentioned previously, the conductors can be anywhere in that movement envelope when they did the survey. As such, it's important for the surveyor to note the weather conditions and the electrical loadings on the line at the time of the survey. And then in PLS CAD, we can include those variables so that we, when we calculate the conductor position, it will be snapped to the LIDAR at the proper location. Then we can calculate the rest of the conductor movement envelope based on that specific snapshot in time at the time of the survey. As far as the output to the utility goes, we can give a report that can be thousands of pages that indicates every single LIDAR point violation, but that's not practical. So what we have done is we group all of these violations together into what we call a work site, as I mentioned above. This can dramatically reduce the output into meaningful condensed reports that allows for zero ends instantaneously on exactly where the violations are. Thanks for that, Otto. I have one last question for you, and then I'm going to turn over to Nick to take us out. Uh, I know that PLS CAD has been uh, quite a game changer for helping utilities better understand the relationship between moving trees and obviously moving conductors. But I know you guys have a bunch of other tools. What other products do you have that our audience may be interested in? Thanks, Steve. Yes, we, we have quite a, a suite of programs. And of course, uh, you know, we do structural analysis through our tower analysis. We do PLS pole, uh, which does steel poles, uh, pole structure analysis. And we've had those for a long time and all of those integrate together. But our latest development is what we call PLS grid. Uh, this is a huge step for us. And the fact that we're moving from a project oriented methodology that we've traditionally done. And, and now we're moving into a grid wide approach. So rather than having to run analytics for each individual project, these analytics can be done and developed within certain extents. So you could uh, highlight a town or a county or an operating district or whatever the user chooses, all the way up to the entire grid. Uh, so, for example, uh, if you're expecting a 70-mile-per-hour windstorm with prevailing winds from the northwest tomorrow, you can apply that wind to the extents or the entire grid and find the areas where the structures are first likely to fail. Uh, we actually call this a heat map, and it's a graphical representation, and, and it can be seen in addition to the standard reports. 
So this would allow the utilities to identify the areas where the weakest part of their territories may be for a given storm coming up. Uh, we can also do this from a vegetation analysis standpoint, which is the subject of this meeting, obviously. But if you want to change the parameters and have a higher clearance level or a different wind speed, we can develop those additional analytics grid-wide very quickly. Thanks, Otto. And just a note for the audience, I'm sure Nick will be posting uh, links to your website on our website. But what is your website? So where can people look to find out more about PLS CAD and also PLS Grid? Sure. Our website is www.powerlinesystems.com. And uh, once you get to the website, if you go to products, PLS Grid is the third item in the list there. And you can learn all about PLS Grid. Uh, we have a couple of uh, video demonstrations of PLS Grid. And uh, along with that, if you go to resources and go to technical notes, it's the third one in the list under resources, uh, and, and look for vegetation management. You will see a lot of stuff that we've done on vegetation management. Uh, you could also, in the upper right, click on the little magnifying glass search tool and search for vegetation. And you'll see some articles that we've that we've written uh, going back all the way to 2001. Uh, we, we were the first people that ever did any type of vegetation management, and we've done nothing but expand on that. And you can see how we're talking about on the on the wire blowout, structure deflections, danger trees, and falling trees. Uh, you'll see all sorts of information on that. If you have any further questions, you can certainly email me directly, or you can send an email to info, I-N-F-O, at powerlinesystems.com. And we will certainly get back with you to answer any questions that you might have. Hey, Otto, I got to clear up a rumor I've been hearing. Uh, I heard that you were actually on NBC last week on the, one of the major shows. Uh, did that actually happen? <laughs> yes, it did. Yeah, I was on the Today Show on Sunday morning. Uh, it was actually unrelated to vegetation management, but it was regarding uh, offshore wind development and, and how we can take that wind and interject it into our grid and, um, you know, it was an hour and a half interview and they ended up using a 10 second clip. And that was great. Uh, a lot of fun. But, um, uh, you know, basically it, the, the synopsis of it was that our existing grid is not capable of taking wind energy or any other renewable energy from a different area and just putting it in the grid and hoping it gets to the right place. We've got to change our grid. We've got to modify our grid in order to be able to do that. Thanks, Otto. It's uh, been absolutely fascinating for me. And uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Nick. Nick, any other questions? Yeah, no, I think that's all from me as well, Steve. Uh, Otto, looking forward to attending the next user group meeting in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, those sort of 2001 work there, I think I recall some of the technical papers on that with Brian Hooper here in, uh, in British Columbia. Yes, we worked with Brian Hooper there back, I believe, 2001. There's a good article on our website uh, that Brian wrote on how this was all developed. And our next user group is uh, next June. We had to postpone this one because of COVID, but we're looking forward, Nick, to seeing you next June and love to have you do a presentation. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Can't wait to uh, sample the cheese curds again. Good stuff. <laughs> so uh, right. on that note, Otto, I just want to say thank you again for uh, joining us for the discussion today. And uh, yeah, looking forward to catching up over a beer when the, uh, when the time comes. And to all our listeners, see you on the next episode of the Utility Vegetation Management Podcast.